Hey, before we get into this week's episode of The Culture, just a quick reminder that if you want to stay up to date with the show, you can follow it in your favourite podcast app. Just search for The Culture. All right, let's get into it. Have you ever wondered how long you would last if you were dropped into the wilderness with just a hunting knife, a shovel and a sleeping bag? Maybe a day, a week... A couple of hours? That's the premise of a show that I've become addicted to recently. It's called Alone, and it's like Survivor on steroids. I'm Osman Faruqi, and this is The Culture, a weekly show from Schwartz Media, where we talk about the latest in the world of pop culture, arts, and entertainment. I've never really seen a reality show like Alone before. It's much more raw and gritty than what we're used to watching, with contestants taking on grizzly bears and hunting wildlife as they compete for a cash prize. It's kind of like a real-life Hunger Games, complete with the discomfort of watching real people struggle against the elements for our entertainment. But there's still something deeply compelling about this show and what it reveals about us. Alone is currently in its eighth season, but it's becoming more popular than ever as lockdown viewers crave the adventure and the wilderness that the show portrays. This week on The Culture, I'm joined by the Saturday Papers TV critic, Sarah Krasnerstein, to talk about why we're so obsessed with Alone and what that says about what we're all grappling with as a society right now. And at the end of the episode, we're going to do something new, something that quite a few of you have been asking us for. We're going to get Sarah to share some of her top TV, book and music recommendations, the things that she's been watching, reading and listening to lately. But first up, let's get into Alone. Sarah, thanks so much for joining The Culture this week. Thank you for having me. So, Sarah, in lockdown, I feel like everyone has found solace in binging different TV yes. shows. Some of us are discovering new ones. Some of us are going back and rewatching wholesome sitcoms just to feel safe and secure. A lot of my friends have been marathoning every single season of The Real Housewives, for example. <sighs> you found another show. It's called Alone. Tell me about what pulled you towards it in lockdown, and what is it about? So uh, it was not on my radar at all, and my very good friend and the talented writer Stephen Amsterdam uh, and his partner Corey had been obsessed with it, and so they had mentioned it in a way that intrigued me because they're very considered, intellectual, elevated Hmm. people, and I thought, oh, that might be a good thing to watch. My husband and I watched one episode. It was very late. And then suddenly we were like 10 episodes and couldn't stop. And that was it. I was hooked. I can understand that feeling. I started watching the show on your recommendation. Thank you. And I initially, when you told me about the show, when I heard about the show, I couldn't understand what was so compelling about it. But <laughs> I've spent multiple nights this week staying up to the early hours to keep watching it. Before we get into why it's so compelling, what makes it so watchable, and what it maybe says about us that we're so obsessed with it, walk me through the mechanics of the show. What is Alone about? 
So it is a uh, American reality TV show in which 10 contestants are selected uh, for their ability to survive in the wilderness. What was that? It's not going to be the pristine reality show that you've seen on so many other networks. It's going to feel a little bit grittier, a little bit more raw. We have to film it, and there is no crew. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're driving in the opposite direction of what you normally do in a survival situation. We're elongating the process instead of trying to get out of it. It's a simple thing. Whoever can stay out the longest wins. And they choose 10 items from a severely restricted list of gear. And with these 10 items, they have to try to make it 100 days in the wilderness while self-documenting their struggles and speaking to camera. It's really easy to just become your own worst enemy. The solitude is driving me insane. I don't have a camera crew to talk to, or I don't have any interaction whatsoever except for me. You spend a lot of time alone in the wilderness, you better like yourself. They're very outdoorsy kind of people. They're not tech experts. They're not influencers. So they have to learn how to operate these cameras. Uh, they also have to schlep all this camera gear with them around should they wish to relocate after they Nearly 100 off. pounds of camera gear, yes, I think. exactly. Yeah. And then they have to figure out, you know, angles and field of view and all of these things. So um, that makes for, you know, a very, I think, original uh, and unusual type of reality show mm. because there's always that conceit that you're alone, but you're not really alone because there's a camera crew. Well, here there's no camera crew. So it's a competition. The last man or woman standing will get an enormous cash prize. But not, none of the contestants has any updates about how anyone else is going. So they don't know whether all 10 of them are still going or whether they'll, they're the last one left. Um, so it's a competition in the end only with themselves. Tell me about the locations that it's shot in. Because when you think about shows that seem similar on the surface, things like Survivor, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, we'll understand why in a second why they are completely the yeah. wrong shows to talk about. But they're often set in tropical places. It, it, it's sort of this conceit of you're in the forest or you're in the woods, but it's teeming with life. There's beaches. It's kind of <laughs> serene and beautiful. Alone is nothing like that. No. So they're, all, they're really in wilderness, in remote locations, often Indigenous-controlled remote locations. Uh, many of the seasons are on Vancouver Island, in, which is in the Canadian Arctic. British sure I just saw a cougar. Vancouver Island has the highest population of cougar in North America. They have over 7,000 black bear and hundreds of wolves. I'm sitting in here. I was just charged by a bear. I don't know where he is. He could be into the woods circling behind me. I don't know. One of the biggest mental challenges they had was starting fire. And everything in this forest is soaking wet. 12.5 feet of rainfall every year. These guys are basically in a car wash on a daily basis. This has been so much tougher than I thought it would be. It's a very cold uh, climate, but it's a rainforest, so everything's damp. So it's not very much like, you know, you could pick a coconut. There's almost nothing to help you if you weren't already kind of aware of how to survive in those mm. situations. And so let's step through what actually happens when these people get dropped into these locations. So they're <laughs> dropped by a helicopter. They've got, as you say, 10 things that they can choose. In yep. some instances, those are like bows and arrows 
axes, hunting knives. Uh, also something I did know existed called a ferro rod. Yes. Which is a, like a stick made of this particular kind of alloy. When you strike <laughs> it, heaps of sparks come off it. How's your great woodsman? Yes. <laughs> is, is that a thing people know about? I think it's I, – I have not, <laughs> nor do I own a ferro rod, but right. I think it's kind of like, uh, you know, you can strike it like – like a match, yeah. but I think it has a limited number of strikes, something right. but in the hundreds. But, okay. um, yeah, fire starter. <laughs> great, great. The twisted fire starter. Yeah, there's one guy in, in season six that I was watching who the first person to not bring a ferro rod and tries to start a fire on his own. It doesn't really end well for him. This is taking forever to make dust. I'm starting to get a little bit weary. I can't get a fire going. Obviously, if I can't do that, I can't survive out here. So what happens is these experts, these wilderness experts, the contestants rather, they get placed in different points in this location. They've got their 10 piece of equipment. Their job then is to basically last as long as they can in this wilderness. So they have to set up a camp. They have to build a tent. They have to uh, start a fire. They have to fish and trap. And this is where the show gets kind of strange for me because, (laughs) like I said, On the very surface level, it sounds like Survivor. But even though Survivor pretends that stuff is grim and, like, you win a challenge to win, like, a bowl of rice, there's no bowls of rice on this show. These are people setting up, like, nets in the rivers to catch fish that they then gut. I've been eating a lot of random stuff. Ants, crickets, lots of edibles. But it's not enough. I need fish. Definitely starting to feel the lack of energy due to calorie deficiencies. It's like I'm living on minimum wage here and I'm kind of living day to day as much as I possibly can. So mainly the thing that I'm focused on is finding a long-term food source, that being a deer or a lot of smoked fish. They are setting traps to catch deer and rabbit and bison. They are skinning them. They are stabbing knives through their hearts. Hunting is something that I've done my whole life, but I've always had support. I've always been able to bring things. But to do it completely on your own, self-supported, just from what the land provides, that's a different story. It's super intense. And essentially, they're just doing this for months and months and months and seeing... How long they can last. Yeah, and in the sixth season, it's um, the most brutal of, I think, all of them. But when it was filmed, it was winter. And Mm -hmm. so previous contestants on previous um, seasons, it was hard enough in the middle of summer. And then they slowly, the standard slowly kind of rises. It is absolutely brutal. They're really on their own. When you think about that, when you think about people on their, a group of 10 people, on their own, chopping wood, surviving snow, filming themselves. It doesn't sound super compelling or exciting, right? No. So I want you to tell me why you think Alone is so watchable. You're addicted. I'm addicted. So many people I speak to are addicted to this show. How come? So it strips away kind of any distraction that I think most of the reality TV that we have, and certainly I think over the last probably like 21 years of the reality genre really coming into its own, has relied on these these distractions, which is strategies about, you know, status and survival, social survival, um, or sex. And I love those shows, you know, as much as the next guy. But it really does put the cart before the horse because we're focusing on group dynamics instead of 
self-knowledge. And when you have the volume of episodes that alone devotes to this exploit and the kind of lack of distractions, just one person speaking to camera with increasing honesty as they become increasingly either desperate or comfortable, it really makes for an incredibly intimate experience. Mm. So even if you're not the kind of person that ever would want to do something like that, the setting, while it's beautiful and, you know, I highly recommend it, especially as lockdown viewing because these vistas of the lake. You get to see the beautiful northern lights. Oh, it's just incredible. The forest is beautiful. That's beautiful. But what's even more beautiful is this kind of sense, real or otherwise, that we are in relationship with these people as they're sharing their interior dialogues, trying to kind of psych themselves up to continue what it takes to endure when you really think you can't go on. Days like this are tough. Your mind drifts to home and things like that, so you have to to put it somewhere else. You know, it used to be a time when a king would actually lead his people into war. I don't think I could do yoga, even if I did know the techniques. Ring ding diddle diddle idee ring Take the heels of both of your feet, place them behind your ears, and relax. I have entertained myself most of the day now. I think that genuine heart of the show has something for everyone. It does feel really different to other reality shows. I think you're right that shows, whether they're Survivor or Big Brother or even The Bachelor, the reality element is not humans surviving on their own. It's a psychological game, essentially. And there's a lot of that I love. Like, I really enjoy Survivor. It's one of my favourite shows because it is psychological game playing, essentially, and social hierarchies. But this is the opposite of that. There's obviously a psychological component to it, but it's a a self-focused one. It's how long can I survive isolated from everyone else? But overwhelmingly, it's a physical thing. Well, I would argue that's also foremost mental, but, you know, the physical is inescapable. They are slowly starving if they don't find enough food. But the thing I love, and I am a humongous Housewives fan, is the effect, and also you see it in The Bachelor, of acclimatizing to the camera. And then so people that are concerned almost entirely with image suddenly kind of forget that that they're being seen. Whereas in Alone, the camera is a kind of lifeline. So you are in dialogue, it seems, even though, of course, we're not. But there is a dialogue that's taking place. It's uniting rather than isolating, even though they are completely isolated and more elevated than kind of this trick of just being the fly on the wall until someone has their third Chardonnay and then they're throwing their shoe, Mm. which also has its place. But this is something that we really start to learn about how self-talk operates when all you want to do is give up, that doesn't apply only to the Canadian wilderness. You know, what happens when your values are at odds with, you know, your situation? It's another question that, you know, is universally relevant. Talk to me a bit more about the production of the show, because in a kind of post-unreal world, this idea of producers producing shows and reality shows not really being reality, almost like scripted and characters being created by what happens in the edit... There's a lot less of that here because it is people shooting themselves. Yeah. But still, we are getting you know 24 hours of footage from 10 contestants a day yeah. being cut down into 40-minute long episodes. So there is something happening through that editing 
process. And I think there's an art to that because it does move along. There is narrative there. How, how do you, how would you explain it? It's very skilled, which is surprising because certain aspects of, this, of the show are also a bit cheesy. Like they have these quotes that come up that may or may not be from the person that they're attributed to and this kind of weird clip art. And that's kind of endearingly. Um, yeah, it sort of feels really low budget at yeah, times. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. But I think that also goes into the reason why the edit is so seamless and so considered, not in season one, but they learn a lot of lessons. So, you know, from a production or technique point of view, what's what's happening there is that they're learning questions of balance, who to focus on, when, how much time to give each contestant so that we have a sense of how everyone's progressing and then how they're progressing relative to each other. So there were a lot of teething issues. In the first series, there was much more kind of those that reality show padding where you had the flashbacks to their normal lives or you saw a bit of the selection process. But in later seasons, they really forego all of that. And you're just looking at each of these people in their own world. And, you know, I don't know how much was cut out. I don't know what the agreement is, how much they have to film each day. But it's fairly comprehensive. So like you say, they would have been just a massive undifferentiated visual material. And what they've gone with for each character does show this incredibly compelling arc of change over time. And... They are, I mean, they're characters, but they're also real people. So they behave consistently also in their ability to surprise us. And you can kind of start to see patterns over time, uh, not just in relation to different personality types, but in relation to who's going to make it the longest. And that's incredibly compelling as well. After the break, we're going to dig into what it takes to win a show like Alone. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Sarah, I want to ask you about how people win and lose the show. Yes. The reasons why people drop off, I find so fascinating because they're so varied. Yeah. Sometimes it's a random situation. It's someone carrying their heavy camera gear, falling down and breaking their leg. Yeah. Other times it's people getting food poisoning. Other times it's people (laughs) missing their family. I wonder what stands out to you as the maybe more surprising or interesting reasons you found for people to ultimately, what they call in the show, tap out and get flown back home. Yeah, so there is that variety. But I think at the end of the day, it really is kind of two reasons why they're going to tap out. And it's so the first one is what we call in the law the the acts of God, which are, you know, the mistakes, uh, unforeseeable mistakes or misfortunes of nature. 
you know, they're terrified because, you know, they've inca- they got between a mama bear and her cubs and there was an unpleasantness that was about to happen resulting in their death and they're out of there. Fair enough. Uh, or they lose their fire starter or, you know, they have an infected wound and they got to get out of there. I'm extremely frustrated. I mentally hadn't even reached that mindset of what would make me want to walk out of these woods. Something as stupid as cutting myself with an axe took me out of this unbelievable experience of a lifetime. Nobody nobody knows me from anybody, so they're going to watch this, and that's how I'm going to be judged. But, you know, like I said, you know, I'm not jacking around with a bear, especially after you run it off once or whatever it was and it comes back. I'm disappointed, but not embarrassed. I'm worried about my safety. What if something happens? I want my son to have his dad. My little girl needs her dad. Of course, my wife's pregnant, so I'm going home. It's real stuff. This is all very intense. Yeah. So there's that category, that basket of things. And then there's the other basket, which is like if the intelligent brain thinks too long about the exercise that you've planned for after work, it will come up with an excuse why that shouldn't happen. Mm. And it'll be it'll sound completely credible, and that's fine. Things that are self-justifying in nature that allow you to kind of get off the hook of something that you don't want to do and come up with a perfectly logical excuse. That's the other basket. And in that basket are people that, you know, say things like, I've, I got what I came for, um, or I'm really... And not that missing your family isn't uh, a valid thing, but, you know, my family needs me. Well, they probably need me. I, I love how savage you are on these people tapping out. You're like, <laughs> they're so soft. Come on. Making no. up excuses. Or, you know, I mean, there's some heartbreaking things like a man whose mother had a cancer diagnosis and he realized he couldn't stay there any longer. But he'd made it a few months and he knew that when he left. And so all of these things, I think, part of the endurance aspect of finishing what you came for, for that second category, is about the accommodations that we come to with our own discomfort. Are you going to persist or are you going to drop out? And how are you going to justify your own discomfort and disappointment with that? I'm a fairly hard taskmaster. I think that, you know, I couldn't make it one night in this situation. So uh, more power to them. But it's interesting because the people that win or the people that make it to the final three or two are those that have felt that full spectrum of perfectly valid, compelling reasons, and they persisted anyway because of their original purpose or their original values. And that consistency, despite feeling very strongly the pull in the other direction, is very interesting to me in terms of the human behavior at play. And let's talk about the incentive to stay on to the end. I think there's obviously an element for some of these people that it's just we love this. Like we want to endure. We want to prove that we can live in harmony with nature in this way for 100 days. But there's also a cash prize. I think the last couple of seasons it's up to half a million dollars. It's a significant amount of money. And I have to say if there's one element of the show that feels a little bit dubious to me, it is this element. I think obviously these people are putting themselves at risk. A lot of them are trained. There are quite good safeguards in place, it seems. There are medical check-ins every so often. There's a satellite phone so they can get SOS. No one's died on this show so far. Yeah. The bit that becomes a little bit more confusing for me is that we get a glimpse into the lives of some of these people before, and none of them seem super well off. 
but they kind of fall into that realm most commonly of that lower middle class Americans. And sometimes they talk about wanting to win this money so their kids can go to college, so that their families can just take it a little bit easy. And that's a sense of, well, how much of this is actually their passion and how much of this is we are going to endure something that could kill us because we are desperate for half a million dollars. And it starts to feel a little bit exploitative for me. It's a super interesting consideration and a valid one. I don't have a tidy answer for it, but I have some thoughts that I think are worth holding up. The first one is there are people who have developed this range of range and depth of survival skills in the first place because they are living largely outside of a late-stage capitalist social model. And so that clash of values with the cash incentive and the things that they say, like, this will pay for college, or one of them in an earlier season says, now I can be the dad that says yes. And it's so moving and and sorrowful that that's an interesting mix, that in order to continue to live this kind of free, nature-based life, they would benefit from the money. It's almost like a reminder of the oppressive nature of capitalism where they think they can escape, they're physically escaping from it, but only within the structure of it more broadly. So that's a hugely interesting consideration. The other thing I um, had noticed was there's not an enormously impressive range of ethnic variation amongst the contestants. I said, brown people, we don't go camping. Jews too. (laughs) It's like we, well, Ashkenazi Jews, it's like we survived for this. Like we're not going to go and eat in a tent on the ground as if history hasn't been hard enough. (laughs) Why would you want to do this? And you're going to, you know, get eaten by a bear and we did this for you. So, you know, it's a very white thing to kind of self-create this challenge and misery. Mm. And that's an interesting Mm. an interesting aspect of it as well. So I, I think at the end of the day, if it's only the money, they don't last to the end, which makes me feel better about watching it, that yeah. they're not truly putting themselves in harm way for purely monetary purposes. One thing I find really interesting about this show at this moment, Sarah, is it's been on you know for eight seasons now. But I've only really started to hear people in my circle talk about it in the last few months. Yeah. And it's kind of gone from zero to 100. And you talked to me a bit earlier about yeah. how you came to it during lockdown. Yeah. I wonder whether, like, there are some shows that we go and watch that are just like, they're on, there's heaps of them, let's binge it during lockdown. Yeah. And there are some shows that suit lockdown because it's almost like, well, they're in isolation. How are they dealing with it? But there's also a beautiful wilderness that I kind of want to explore. Yeah. Do you think there's an element of the state of the world right now that's pulling us towards a show like this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think just walking around that aspect of it, there's two things that I think are important. One, there's a lot of alone. There's the sheer volume of alone, just not only in the number of seasons, but in the number of episodes per season. And the pacing of it is gradual. So when you strip away commuting and socializing outside of our you know, houses, we've got a lot more time mm. and the pace of life has slowed down. So we build it around, you know, homeschooling schedule or your, your little walk or your, you know, <laughs> all of the sadness, the sad joys of our, of our small days. And suddenly the pacing doesn't seem so jarring anymore. It's, it matches the pace of our lives, certainly in Melbourne in lockdown, but I think everywhere at this moment. And being able to watch somebody 
be horrified by having too much freedom in this vast magisterial wilderness is almost a delicious luxury mm. when you've looked at the same four walls for weeks and weeks on end for literally hundreds of days. I mean, we've made it, what, 230 days? You could have told me 2,000 and right. I would have believed it's you. 230,000 yeah. days, <laughs> um, where is our cash prize <laughs> in our interior wilderness? So it has that kind of curative balancing effect of, you know, we're suffering from too little freedom, they're suffering from too much freedom, uh, this is what it is to be human. We're never happy. There's another compulsion for me, and maybe this is just me being crazy, but I feel like in the last few years, the state of the world never felt more precarious between the pandemic, between mounting climate change, and everything feels like we could tip over at any point in time. And I sometimes have been thinking more and more that if everything fell apart, if society sort of dissolved and we lived in some post-apocalyptic world, like what skills do I offer? <laughs> I don't think I don't think I don't think podcasting is is right at the top of the list of oh, rebuilding. And so I find this show so interesting because I'm like I'm kind of watching on one screen, on the other screen I'm like googling all right, ferrorod, rod, like gill net, <laughs> like how to skin a trout. Like is this something that I need to know about? And at the same time that the show is getting more popular, this whole concept of doomsday preppers, oh, and yeah. people, you know, is there maybe, feel free to say I'm crazy, but do you think there's any chance that other people are feeling similarly? Oh, no, I think it's, it's we don't have transferable skills to a, a wilderness economy, although I have a sneaking, like, over confident, delusional suspicion that I might be able to stab an ox to death if I had to. <laughs> I, I think I'm quick. I'm not big, but I'm quick. Although I've See, I don't even know knee. if I could do that. What could what like? Okay, I could fish maybe. <laughs> I, don't. <laughs> I don't even trust myself to distinguish between various types of edible seaweed. I, I would hundred percent in a bad There's way. Those people are like, oh, this mushroom I can eat, and they're like, I can turn this moss into a thing for my tent. <laughs> if you put me, you put me anywhere aside from like the inner city, I would lose my mind. I'm yeah. not ready for this. If they have a need for podcasters or people that could critically analyze <laughs> the social situation where no one lives, I, I, I'm, I'm your girl. Sarah, that takes me to a question that I want to ask you. I don't know if you have thought about this much, but if you were dropped into the wilderness mm -hmm. and you could choose some items to take, okay, yes. what do you think you'd prioritize? I think I would have to take one of those big shipping crates of power bars that <laughs> I could do. Like, I'd need that. I would not be good with the food thing because I, I think if I could even trap something or catch something, then I'd have to learn how to – it's not that I'm squeamish. It's just it seems to be quite a delicate operation to skin something and remove the mm. organs. Mm. So power bars, the fire rod – because if we had to do that, like... I think I'm going to get a fire rod now. I don't know when I'm going to need it, but I like the idea <laughs> that I've got a rod that can start ready, a fire. Yeah, just in case. Exactly, yeah. Um, probably would be the items that I terror ordered at the earlier stages of the <laughs> pandemic, which was just a lot of tuna and UHT milk. <laughs> um, and I, the tarp seems to be a good choice because you can make it into a tent. Mm. I really, I don't know, probably a lot of books. <laughs> I feel like I feel better hearing you say that because I'm like, if there's someone who's going to do worse in the apocalypse yeah, than me, it's probably going to be you. Yeah. Books and tuna. <laughs> <laughs> Can opener, I mean. There's a lot of seasons of this show. We're yeah. up to eight now. It's streaming on Binge. The previous seven seasons, I think, are on SBS On Demand. Yeah. 
that's a lot to get into. If someone's listening to this and they want to give this show a red hot go, yes. do you have any advice? Where should they start? I would start with season six, purely because that's where I started, but also having had the benefit of gone, going back and forward. It's a very beautiful iteration of all of the kind of personality types. The The production is clearest in the edit. It's easy to follow everyone's progress. And the final three, and I will not give any spoilers, but the final three really demonstrate all of the beautiful things about this show, not just the attitude of endurance and persistence, but also a very kind of humbled approach towards the indigenous communities from whom they had learned how to trap things, the clothing, the way in which they have set up their shelters. And so it's got that aspect, which makes it a, a much kind of richer, thicker viewing experience. Next up on the show, Sarah recommends what else to watch, read, and listen to right now. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au. So, Sarah, we want to do a new thing with you. This is something that a lot of listeners of the culture have been asking. They say, Oz, you interview so many smart, cool people uh, and you talk about shows or books or albums and I love that, but I want to know what these people are watching or listening to or reading aside from the topic you're talking to them about. So I'm very happy to talk about these things. Please. In terms of other viewing, at the moment, uh, two things come to mind. One I love so much that I don't even think I could write about it because I think it would be uninteresting and all I would have to say is I really love this, and that is Only Murders in the Building, which is currently on Disney, I think. Is it the new Steve Martin one? Martin Short and Selena Gomez. Who knew? (laughs) It is... I, I find it just the most delicious, beautiful Can thing Can you give to us a, a pricey of it? It is uh, three true crime podcast enthusiasts who are uh, find themselves in the middle of a murder investigation. This is in New York and Manhattan that occurs in the building. I can't think of a more Sarah Crescent <laughs> show than this one. Well, wait for it. So the, the credits, they sample the music, samples Serial, um, <laughs> which you'll only know if you are a Serial fan. The art uh, of the credits is, you know, this nightscape of Manhattan, just the most delicious thing. And the font is the New Yorker font. <laughs> it is, I have like, thank you, Steve Martin. But I also have a very, and it's funny because you mentioned at the beginning, Oz, how people are going back and watching things that are nostalgic for them. I have gone back over the last 18 months and rewatched um, all of the Steve Martin films from the 80s. Uh, and they fill me with such warmth any, and joy. Um, any particular standouts, any favourites from that? I really like Roxanne, <laughs> Three Amigos. Three Amigos. Does Dirty Rotten Scandals count or is yes. that too late? Yeah. I, lo- I don't think that's 80. I think that's early 90s. Well, it might be 89, but it's just delicious. It's great. So it, it has that. And Martin Short is hilarious. I mean, he really is so hilarious. And Selena Gomez is great in it. So that is a TV show I will recommend that I have just loved. Incarceration Nation, not within my TV wheelhouse because it is a documentary film, so I don't get to write about it, but um, very vital, important, 
brilliantly done look at structural inequality and the ongoing legacy of colonization in Australia. What's that on? That's on SBS? Uh, SBS as well. Uh, Reading at the moment, I'm at the pointy end of my quarterly essay deadline. So most of my reading is work-related. But I have just ordered for my click and collect from readings uh, the new Claire Coleman, Lies, Damned Lies, which is a personal kind of memoir-based explorations of the legacy of intergenerational mm. trauma. We love Claire Coleman, yeah. Colonization in Australia as well, brilliant writer. I don't think I could talk about alone without – this isn't a new book, but I did reread it for my review. Wabgashig Rice, he's a um, First Nations Canadian writer, and his book, Moon of the Crusted Snow, uh, which was 2018, uh, I referred to in the article. So if you're not uh, across him, Wabgashig Rice, Moon of the Crusted Snow, that is phenomenal. Uh, and listening, I wish I had something. Oh, no, no, I have one more watching, one watching. I'm very late to this, yeah. uh, but this is Pop on Netflix, particularly the Boys to Men episode, because mm. I'm a huge and uh, old school Boys to Men fan. And that was very beautiful to watch. In terms of the story construction, very compelling. And the T-Pain episode. I was going to say the T-Pain episode is the standout for me. It was so emotional. I am going to probably tear up even talking about this now. Who knew that his little interaction with Usher could bring tears to my eyes? But the pathos of T-Pain and Autotune and the narrative arc of how each of these episodes is constructed, beautiful storytelling. Mm. Um, so any fans of music, I mean, you know, reasonable minds can differ about their, um, you know, points of focus for the episodes, but they're kind of limited. I hope it comes back with another season. Mm, me too. And speaking of music. Music. So there's a reissue of, it's a box set uh, called Feel Flows, which is the Beach Boys sessions for, I think it was Sunflower and Surf's Up. So from the late 60s to the early 70s. And unless you're a hardcore Beach Boys fan, Fan, you're probably not going to get. I was going to. I didn't think you this. necessarily for a hardcore. Oh, Beach I am Boys a fan. hardcore really? Beach Boys fan. Yes, but you don't have to listen to the uh, you know alternative takes and outtakes. The Big Sur, that version of it, is a beautiful summer song. It's a very summery album. So a great wreck as we get into the yes. warmer weather here. Yeah. So you'll see if you if you look it up on iTunes, you'll see like what the hell? There's like three thousand <laughs> songs here. You don't need to listen. Although they are very beautiful to kind of have that little behind the scenes. Um, look at how these songs that have become iconic could have sounded. Mm. Um, but yeah, feel flows. Sarah, that's a lot of brilliant recommendations. Thank you for being so generous. No, um, and thanks for coming on The Culture. Always a blast. Thank you for having me. The Culture is a weekly show from Schwartz Media. It's produced by Bez Zoder and Atticus Basto. Our editor-in-chief is Eric Jensen and our theme music is by Hermitude. I'm Osman Faruqi. See you next week. 